calling The Forgotten God. I think we're seven, eight weeks into this series, and that was just like the introduction, all right? We're talking about the Holy Spirit, and what we've talked about so far has been like Holy Spirit 101, and uh, I'm going to warn you this morning, we're going from Holy Spirit 101 to like master's class today. Uh, we got a lot to cover, and it's going to be deep, and I'll just tell you right up front that um, if, if you have yet to make the decision to follow Jesus, uh, that's just something you're exploring, then what we're going to talk about this morning is not for you yet. Uh, but we're glad you're here. Normally what we typically do is we try and tailor things uh, for you. Uh, this morning, this is for those who have already made that decision. But don't leave because, uh, number one, I think you'll, find, you'll hear some stuff that will be important to you. But number two, uh, if anything else, it will help you understand those of us who call ourselves Christians a little bit better. And so hang in there with us. But we're in this series. We're calling this series The Forgotten God. Because I think that oftentimes when it comes to the Holy Spirit and when we think about God, we tend to think in terms of like God, uh, in terms of God the Father, God the Son, and then, oh yeah, there's the Holy Spirit. That the Holy Spirit is kind of like, you know, that weird uncle that shows up at Christmas time and you never know what he's going to do. He just will do something crazy and you don't really want to hang around with him, but you tolerate him because he's family. And unfortunately, in many circles, that's the way people treat the Holy Spirit. And I've said this before, I'm going to keep driving this home, is the Holy Spirit is not weird. People are weird. And just because weird people do weird things in the name of the Holy Spirit, that does not make the Holy Spirit weird. He's God. And we've been talking about as God, the Holy Spirit, there are specific things that he was sent to do in order to, as Jesus said, he would be our advantage. Jesus actually said that it is to your advantage that I go. And I've said this before, this is mind-boggling to me, that Jesus would actually say this, that imagine if you're there, you're his original audience, you're his friends, you've walked with him 24-7, you've been with him, you've listened to his teaching, you've seen him heal the sick, you watched him raise dead people. I mean, you're hanging out with God in the flesh, and he says, it's better for you, it's going to be your advantage that I leave. Mind-boggling. And we talked about, you know, why could he say that? If you missed any of the past several weeks, I encourage you to go back and, and, and to, um, to listen or to watch those services. But this morning, what I want to talk to you about is what I believe next to the gifts of the Spirit has to be one of the most misunderstood roles that the Holy Spirit plays in the life of a believer, it's one of the most misunderstood, and yet at the same time, it's one of the most significant. And that is that the Holy Spirit was sent. One of the reasons why he's our advantage is the Holy Spirit was sent to be a sanctifier. One of his desires, one of his purposes is to sanctify and make holy every single believer. Now, um, if, if, um, if that is something that is a new term to you uh, or something that you have this preconceived idea, I want to ask you to, to set that aside 
uh, because we're going to try and unpack this a little bit for you this morning. And, and, and I'll just tell you again, this is like master's level stuff. This is like, I told Carly yesterday, I said, man, I'm trying to cram like multiple semesters into, you know, just the four or five hours that we're going to be here this morning. But <laughs> no, in, in 40 minutes or so. And so there's a lot to say about this. We're not going to be able to say everything. But if you've got your Bibles, I want to encourage you to open them up to the book of Hebrews chapter 5. And um, before we jump in and read this particular text, I want to give you a little bit of context. The book of Hebrews is, is actually a letter that was written to Jewish Christians. So they're Hebrew by birth. They had been raised in this very uh, strict religious culture that had all kinds of rules, which, which quite frankly, over time, these rules had been abused by those in power to, uh, to keep certain people down and to, to help others maintain the power that they had. And so um, these believers, these Hebrews, had become sick of all of that. Because rather than giving them any sense of hope and freedom, which is what God is supposed to do for us. Instead, all this religious system accomplished was it was used to keep them in a place where they had anything but been set free. And so when they heard about Jesus, which by the way, they would have heard about Jesus the same way most of us heard about him. They heard about him from other people who had experienced him firsthand. And when they heard about Jesus, they were like, you know, oh my goodness, you mean instead of me having to uh, work and strive and trying to live up to something that just seems so unattainable, ho hoping, you know, somehow, someday I'll be good enough for God to love and accept me, instead they're like, you mean you're telling me that all I have to do is accept what God has done for me? But it's not about what I can do for him, it's what he's already done for me. And when they heard that, they're like, man, that's really good news. That, that's good news. And so they were immediately drawn to the love and the grace and the mercy of Jesus. They accepted it, like, like many of you have. And they committed themselves to be disciples of Jesus or followers of Jesus. However, something happened as they began on their journey and following Jesus, all of a sudden, they began to discover a couple of things. First of all, they discovered that instead of everything getting easier like they thought it would, instead, as a result of their decision to follow Jesus, persecution entered into their lives. And that persecution came in many different ways. It came from their own uh, countrymen, their own fellow Jews. It came from the hands of the Romans. Uh, but, but all of a sudden, they're, they're suffering this great persecution. And life, rather than getting easier, it actually became more difficult. Uh, another thing that happened is they learned more about the teachings of Jesus, especially when it came to things like, like, like morality, or things like, you know, how you treat other people, specifically the people who are mean to you or mistreat you or are persecuting you. Uh, people who don't view the world in the same way that you view the world. When it came um, to things like, like um, prioritizing stuff, you know, things like 
what Jesus was calling them to, how he was calling them to prioritize like their time, their, their money, their treasure. All of a sudden, they begin to discover that while salvation is free, it was a gift that had cost them nothing, they began to discover that to truly follow Jesus, it was actually going to cost them something. In other words, they were confronted with the reality that, that salvation is free because Jesus paid the price for it. It wasn't, it wasn't free, it was costly, but he paid for it with his life. But to be a disciple, it was going to cost them their lives. They, they learned that the call of Jesus was to take up their cross and come follow me. That the fullness of this new life only comes from a res, as a result of the, of, of the death of an old one. You can't have a new life and an old life at the same time. One of them is going to have to give. And, and this is what Paul discovered, and he's talking about in Galatians chapter 2, when he said these words in Galatians 2.20, he says, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I know, I now live, in the, or now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I've been crucified with Christ. Now, Paul didn't actually hang on a cross. He was talking about the laying down of his life for the sake of the gospel. And so really what the Hebrews discovered and this is really what the writer of Hebrews is reminding them of, is that coming to faith is just the beginning. It's only the beginning. It's the first step in a very long journey. This is why the writer of Hebrews describes it in terms of it's a, it's a new birth. It's like a, a new birth. And just like in real life, birth is not the destination. Being a baby is not the end goal. No wives look at your husbands right now. That's not. <laughs> Being a baby is not the goal. So birth is not the destination. It's just the beginning of something. Once you're born, that begins the process of growing up and maturing. And so the message of Hebrews is really, you got to keep going. The message of Hebrews is, you got to keep moving forward. And in order to keep moving forward, you need help. You, you can't do it on your own. What you, what you actually need is you need God to do something for you, in you. You need God to enable you to do what you can't do on your own. Okay, so we have this group of believers who started out well, but they're not moving forward. And as a result of that, you know, sometimes they're in, sometimes they're out, sometimes they're up, sometimes they're down, sometimes they're hot, sometimes they're cold. They're all over the place, which, which I've just described some of our lives, but, but they're all over the place to the point that many of them had gotten to the, the place where they had completely turned away from the faith. They're like, man, this is impossible. I can't live this way. And they had turned away from the faith and back into sin. And, and it's, kind of, it's, it's kind of like this story that I had heard one time about this little girl who uh, one night, she, in the middle of the night, she fell out of bed. Her mother heard her, and she rushed into the room, and she said, Honey, what happened? And the little girl, kind of bewildered, said, I don't know. I guess I must have just stayed too close to where I got in. 
That's the problem, right? We weren't meant to stay where we got in. If we don't move forward, the tendency is to fall out. And I see this all the time. There's, there's two groups of people. There are those who give their lives to Jesus. And, and after they give their lives to Jesus, they just begin to, to chase after him. And they learn and they grow. And they allow the Holy Spirit to begin to deal with shortcomings in their lives. And, and they, they allow him to convict them of sin. And they hunger and thirst after righteousness. And, and so they don't stay where they're at. They just keep growing and growing and growing and growing in Christ-likeness. Becoming more and more like Jesus. And then there are others who, you know, they give their lives to Jesus. They make the very same decision. And, and for whatever reason, they just kind of park right there. Like, like that was the goal. I did it. You know, I got my ticket punched. So someday later when I die, I'm going to go into in, heaven. And there's, there's really no pursuit of Jesus. There's really no desire to give up uh, any of the sinful habits that they had. There's no growing in relationship. And eventually what happens is, is those fo- folks wind up, they stay t- because they stayed too close to where they got in, is they wind up right back where they started. You see, here's the reality about following Jesus. The term to follow, by definition, indicates movement, motion. And so here's the reality when it comes to to following Jesus. You will either be moving forward and growing, or you will be sliding backwards. Now, now understand this, I'm talking about over time. All of us have those days and, and all of those has those seasons in our lives where it feels like, man, it's like two steps forward and one step backwards. But, but over time, there's still growth that's taking place. If we're following, then we are meant to move forward and to grow. And, and so here's part of what the writer of Hebrews says to these folks who had made this commitment to follow Jesus, but they just had kind of stalled out. He says that there is so much more that we would like to say about this. Now, he's just been talking about the supremacy of Christ. And so there's so much more we'd like to say about the supremacy of Christ, about all that. He goes on, but he says, but it is difficult to explain to you especially since you're spiritually dull and don't seem to listen. Ouch. Verse 12, he says, you've been believers so long now that you ought to be teaching others. But instead, you need someone to teach you again the basic things about God's word. He says, you are like babies who need milk and cannot eat solid food. For someone who lives on milk, the writer of Hebrews says, is still an infant and doesn't know how to do what is right. Solid food is for those who are mature, who through training have the skills to recognize the difference between right and wrong. And so again, he's painting this picture here of a group of people who they've been saved. They've they've recognized that they're sinners. They've asked Jesus to forgive them of their sins. They They have the hope of heaven and a desire to live lives that are different, but that's as far as they've gone. And so he goes on. He says, so let us, not, let us stop 
going over the basic teachings about Christ again and again and again. Let us go on instead and become mature in our understanding. He says, surely we don't need to start again with the fundamental importance of repenting from evil deeds and uh, placing our faith in God. You don't need further instruction about baptism, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, the eternal judgment. And so God willing, we will move forward. Those are the basic things. Those are, the, the, that, those are Christianity 101. He's saying, let's move forward to further understanding. Verse 4, he says, for it is impossible to bring back to repentance those who were once enlightened. Those who have experienced the good things of heaven and shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the power of the age to come, and who then turn away from God. It is impossible to bring such people back to repentance by rejecting the Son of God. They themselves are nailing him to the cross once again and holding him up to public shame. Now, this is a tough little section here, and I don't want to just breeze right past it. And so just for clarity, remember, we've talked about this before, that in order to understand Scripture, we have to take it in context, and, and, and we have to interpret Scripture with other Scripture. And nowhere else in Scripture does it teach that there is not forgiveness for people who have turned away and want to come back. That's not the point that he's trying to make here. You, you see, the point that the writer is trying to make is We have to understand that when we make the decision to turn away from God, by doing so, what we're doing is we are choosing a direction in life. When we turn away from God, we're we're choosing a direction. And when we choose a direction away from God, he's saying it is going to be impossible for you to live out the destiny that God has for you. Because you're heading in an opposite direction of where your destiny is. You'll never fully experience the fullness of what you've been created for by heading away from God. You're always going to fall short. In other words, you're never going to find joy and peace and happiness and contentment and fulfillment. You're never going to find completeness when you head in any direction that is opposite of God. But this is why God is so adamant about sin. It's not because God is, you know, he's like some kind of control freak who, who you know, he's just made all of these random rules. And, and, you know, if you don't follow the rules, then God's feelings get hurt. And so he's, you know, he's mad. And he's just going to crush you because you didn't follow the rules that he made. And he's, he's just mad about that. No. It's because God knows that sin ultimately destroys it it always destroys it it distorts it it always prevents us from fully experiencing the destiny that we were created for some someone once said that the standing between god's intended destiny for you and you actually living out that destiny in, in between of those two things are the decisions that you make and one of the traps that we can fall into thinking is that, you know, once, once I've accepted Christ, once I've made that decision, that's the last decision that I make. And so what the writer of Hebrews is trying to help us understand, no, no, the decision to follow Jesus is not the final decision. Instead, it's the first good decision. And now you're going to have to 
to follow. And, 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 and Jesus isn't going to, like, once you make a decision to follow Jesus, he's not going to, like, tie a chain around your neck and drag you along and force you to follow him. Whenever we follow somebody, it's a choice that we make. And, and so there's this series of decisions of, of am I going to follow, am I going to follow Jesus and experience all that God has for me? The writer of Hebrews goes on in verse 7, he says, When the ground soaks up the falling rain and bears a good crop for the farmer, it has God's blessing. But if a field bears thorns and thistles, it is useless. The farmer will soon condemn that field and burn it. Now, again, this is kind of harsh right here. But, But it's the reality. Jesus says the same thing over in John chapter 15, and then again in Matthew chapter 3. He says things like, every branch or every tree that doesn't bear good fruit is going to be cut down and thrown into the fire. In other words, again, it's this idea that choosing to follow Jesus is the way that leads to life, and choosing to go the other direction is a way that that we choose that leads to death. He goes on in verse 9, he says, Dear friends, which is a really good thing to say after you've said a bunch of hard stuff. Because I want to remind you that you're my friends. I'm, I've, I've had to say some hard truth here, but I want you to know that it's for your good. You're still my friend. I, I had an experience yesterday where um, I, I'm part of the, the board of, of ministry in our denomination, and every year we interview uh, pastoral ministry candidates, people who are in the course of study, and they're working their way towards being ordained as pastors in the church. And there was one of the pastors, one of the candidates that we interviewed, that, that we had to call him into accountability. That there were some things that, that, that were existed in his life that were not conducive to him leading and being a good pastor. And, and so uh, we, we began to call those things. I'll just be honest with you. He got a little offended when we began to call him into account. And we had to say, we had to remind him, hey, remember, we are not against you. We are for you. And the reason we're calling this out, it's not meant to be condemning or judgmental, but the reason we're calling it out is because of love for you and the desire to see you prosper. See, when somebody's your friend, really your friend, you'll say the hard things that need to be said. If you don't care about them, you won't waste your time and your energy. And so this guy says, I want you to know You're my friends. I've said some hard stuff, but dear friends, even though we're talking this way, he says, we don't really believe that this applies to you. This is a warning to you. Now watch this. Why doesn't it apply to them? He says, because we are confident that you are meant for better things, things that come with salvation. So the question this morning is, once we've received this new life of salvation, What are the better things that we're meant for? Aren't you glad that God's intent is that he has better things, we're meant for better things? 
I mean, this is a promise that's been given to us over and over in Scripture. One of my favorite verses, Jeremiah 29, 11. Many of you know that, that by heart. But for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. In other words, the plans that I have for you, they're good. He has good plans for us, better things. Later in, in Hebrews, fortunately, he, he tells us later in this letter in, in Hebrews 10, he, he, he begins talking about the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, life in the Old Testament, this Old Covenant, and how as part of the Old Covenant, the system was this, is that um, sacrifices had to be made over and over and over again on behalf of the ongoing sin of the people. That was the Old Covenantial system. But he says, but Jesus, with the coming of Jesus... Through his death and his resurrection, he eradicated the old covenant and he instituted a new covenant where he himself actually became the final sacrifice for sin. And when we accept what Jesus has done for us, the result is not just our salvation, but also it is intended to lead us to the something better. This, it's intended to lead us to this place where this, this, um, this cycle of, of sin and sacrifice and sin and sacrifice and sin and sacrifice is eradicated, which, which this is a result of the new covenant. Look at verse 10. He says, by his will, now he's talking about Jesus is doing the will of the Father, so by his will, doing the will of the Father, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. We have been sanctified. Okay, so the, the better thing, according to the writer of Hebrews, is our sanctification. Pa Paul talks about this in 1 Thessalonians. He, he says, as for other matters, brothers and sisters, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. Now we ask you and urge you, in the Lord Jesus Christ to do this more and more. And so, again, there's this idea of more and more. There's this idea of growing and moving. Verse, three, uh, verse 2, for you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. It is God's will that you should be sanctified. And then he kind of fleshes this out a little bit, that, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that's holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the pagans who don't know God, and, and that in this manner, no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. The Lord will punish all who commit such sins, as we told you and warned you before. Now watch this, verse 7, for God did not call us to be impure. But he called us to live holy lives. Therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction is not rejecting a human being, but they are rejecting God, the very God who gives you his Holy Spirit. Okay, so let's, let's, let's just talk for a moment about what, what is this sanctifying work of the Spirit, that once you've experienced the new birth of salvation, it's the better thing that the writer of Hebrews is talking about. In, in thinking about this and trying to unpack it, I was like this close to just giving you the 108-word 
theological statement of what sanctification is. And then in my mind, I envision all of your eyes like glazing over and like in the cartoons when those little circles go like that. And so I decided not to do that. I thought, you know, I, I think I can do better than that. And in fact, I think I can reduce this idea of sanctification down to three words. And eventually, I think we can reduce it down to one. All right, so here's the three words that I think best describe what the Bible is talking about when it talks about being sanctified. Three words. Holiness, purity, surrender. Holiness, purity, surrender. Let, let, let's just unpack this a little bit. Holiness. In the Old Testament, the word um, for holy is the word kadosh. It's, it's referring, first of all, it, it refers, first of all, to um, God. It's like, it's like the godness of God. That, that there's, there's nobody else like God. That, um, that, that he is um, holy other. That he's completely other. There's no thing, there's nobody that's like him. He's set apart from everything and everybody else. And so ultimately, only God is holy because he's holy other. But then if you read through scripture, there are different times where there are, there are people and things that God chooses to designate as holy in order to fill, fulfill holy purposes. For, for instance, the, the tabernacle, when the Moses and the people are out in the wilderness, the tabernacle is declared holy. Inside there's the holy of holies. Um, the temple in Jerusalem, when it's, it's declared holy. There are items within the temple that are declared holy, like the, the Ark of the Covenant and the candlesticks. And, and, and it's this idea that these places or things are set aside by God for holy purposes. The same, the same could be said of, of people. If you read through the Old Testament, there are certain people who are declared holy by God. For instance, the priests, the Levites, are declared holy by God. In fact, uh, the, the children of Israel, the people of Israel, are declared holy. These are God's holy people set aside by God for God's holy purpose. And, and so when we talk about holiness... That, that's one of the things that we're talking about. Not that there's anything special about us that we're holy because of our own goodness. No, we're talking about the fact that we have been made holy because of the goodness and the grace of God. We've been made holy for his purpose. What, what, what is that? To love him. That's what we were created for, right? To, to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbors as ourselves. And so when we think about being holy, a lot of people tend to immediately think in terms of, you know, holy behavior, that, that we're perfect and we never mess up. And so they struggle with this idea of holiness because nobody's perfect but God, right? Well, I, I love John, John Wesley's favorite way to talk about Sanctification and holiness is, he talked about it in terms of what he called perfect love. That, that we were created to have this love relationship with God. And of course, sin interrupted all of that. And instead, we became fixated on ourselves because of sin within us. To the point 
That rather than having an unabashed, uh, unabated love for God, that instead what we want becomes the driving force of how we live our lives. But through the death and resurrection of Jesus and the sanctifying power of the Spirit, our ability to love God is actually restored. And so really this idea of holiness really involves our ability to wholly love God the way we were created to love him. And then we live our lives according to that. The the second word is the word purity. When we talk about sanctification, there's this there's this element of purity that we're talking about, and it's, it's purity of heart. Paul talks about this in 1 Thessalonians. He says, it is God's will that you would be sanctified, for God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. One, one of the verses that you'll hear me, hear me quote over and over again around here is 1 John 1.9. It, it says that if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. That's the salvation experience. There's actually a second part to that verse. Not only does God want to forgive us of our sins, but it goes on to say that he also wants to purify us from all unrighteousness. But what what it's talking about is the reality that God's desire is not just to forgive us of our sins. What he really wants to do is deal with the problem within us that leads us to sin. The, The real problem is not that we sin. It's that we have something within us that makes us sin. It causes us to sin. In other words... Sin, the behavior, is just the symptom. And God wants to get to the root of the problem. Paul talks about this in in Romans 7 and 8. In fact, he identifies this problem in that he says that each of us have been born with, as a result of the fall, we have been born with what he calls a carnal nature. The the carnal nature is simply this propensity or this predisposition that exists within each of us, which exists, again, it's a a result of the fall, but it's to where our hearts are constantly bent toward sin. In Galatians chapter 5, Paul calls it the desires of the flesh, that fight against the, the spirit. And so one of the things that the Holy Spirit will do is he wants to purify our hearts of all this. Ezekiel talks about this. He says he's looking forward and he says there's going to come a day when God is going to purify your hearts to where you don't have a divided heart anymore. You're going to have a unified heart, not a heart of stone that rejects the prompting of the Holy Spirit, but a heart of flesh that is in love with the Father who follows the will of the Father. That's what the Holy Spirit wants to do within us. He wants to deal with that carnal nature once and for all. And in Romans chapter 7 and 8, you know, this is the beauty of these two chapters. In Romans 7, it's all about, you know, why is it that I don't have the power to do what I want to do and instead I'm always pulled into what I I don't want to do? And of course, the answer is it's because of the carnal nature that exists within your heart. You need to be purified from that. 
And then Romans 8, Romans 8 goes on and it says, you know, hey, listen, this is the power of the life-giving spirit. It will set you free from all of that. This is the answer. This is the solution. If you'll just let him, the Holy Spirit will purify your heart so that you no longer have to follow your sinful nature, but instead you can be empowered by the Spirit to follow the promptings of the Spirit. See, it's, it's, it's the Holy Spirit at work in us. And so, so, Pastor Doug, are you saying that once you're sanctified, once you're purified from your carnal nature, that you'll never, ever, ever sin again? That you can't, you can't sin again? Absolutely not. I'm not saying that. What I am saying is he'll set you free from having to sin again. But what I'm saying is you don't have to be so controlled by sin that you sin in thought, word, and deed every single day. You, you can actually be set free from the domination and the control of sin in your life. You see, when you're sanctified, you're still going to be human. And, and, and so you're still going to make mistakes. There's still growth and maturity that will need to continue that will be a lifelong process. It'll take place until you go to heaven. But see, what we have to understand is that there is a distinct difference between a pure heart and a mature character. We can have a pure heart and still need to grow in the area of our character. Our heart can be pure, but our character still needs to develop and mature, which is a lifelong process. But here's the deal. When the Holy Spirit purifies your heart, then whenever a mistake is made, you'll quickly confess it. I mean, the Holy Spirit is there. One of his jobs is to convict us of sin. And, and, and I mean, I, I have this happen where there are times where the Holy, this, this last week, the Holy Spirit said, hey, this attitude that you had, you need to check that. It wasn't, wasn't the kind of attitude that I want you to have. So there's a decision that has to be made in that moment. Remember, we, we make these decisions. So am I going to fight against him and say, I can have whatever attitude I want. Who are you to tell me what to do? Or to say, you know, you're right. That really isn't like you. I don't want to be like that. Would you forgive me for that? And we just keep moving. We just keep going forward. But a pure heart will help it. We'll quickly confess it. We'll repent of it. And we'll continue to pursue a life dedicated to pleasing God. Now, an impure heart, when it makes, when, when it makes a mistake, will justify it, hide it, rationalize it, Defend it. You see, what, I, what I'm saying is, we're talking about purity of heart that the Holy Spirit wants to give us. The, the last word is the word surrender. And we need to understand that what happens when we're saved, the moment we're saved, when we are saved, what we do is we, we give God all of our sin, and he forgives us of our sin. We give him all of the bad stuff, all of, all of the things that we've done to offend him, all the things that we've done to hurt other people, all the things that we've done to hurt ourselves, everything that is against what he's taught. We give him all the bad stuff, and in that moment, we are forgiven, and we get put in right standing with God. In, in fact, in that moment, what we, we're actually sanctified positionally. In other words, 
that the righteousness of Jesus, we've talked about this, Paul talks about this. He says that what Jesus did on the cross was he took all of our sin upon himself. He took all of his righteousness and he put it upon us. And so we become sanctified um, positionally in that the righteousness of Jesus is put on us. And in fact, salvation is called, in in theological terms, initial uh, sanctification. But what happens when we're entirely sanctified, which is what we're talking about really today, is that we've, we've already given God all of our sin, but we've come to this realization that what he really wants is not just our sin. What he really wants is us. He, he wants all of us. Everything that we are. And, and so we, we've, we've already been sanctified positionally in salvation. But when we surrender all that we are to God, then we actually are sanctified personally or experientially. We don't just have the righteousness of Jesus put on us. We are actually made righteous by the work of the Holy Spirit. Again, this is what what Paul is talking about. This is the idea of Galatians 2.20. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. And I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You see, part of being sanctified is coming to that place where we've, we've just fallen so in love with Jesus. We, we just love Jesus so much that we, we begin to want what he wants more than what we want. And, and so we're willing to, to lay all of the stuff that we want aside and surrender everything to him because of our love for him. I, I, I told you that we could reduce this down even further from three words to one. So I've given you I've given you holiness, I've given you purity, I've given you surrender. I I think we could really reduce this down into one word. In essence, what we're really talking about when we talk about sanctification is simply Christ-likeness. Becoming more like Jesus. But when we talk about destiny, that's really our destiny. You see, when God created you, he created you, according to Scripture, in his own image. Man man was created in the image of God, in his likeness. And really, the greatest impact of sin is it alters and it disrupts who we were created to be. It alters and disrupts our destiny. And so when, when, when the Holy Spirit sanctifies us, when he purifies our hearts, when he makes us holy... Ultimately, what, we'll, what, what he's doing is he's doing that so that we can become more and more like him, more and more like Jesus, which, which finally will happen. Again, this is a, there's a maturation process. There's a growth process. But becoming fully like Jesus will ultimately happen in what is called our final sanctification or, or glorification when we get to heaven. We get new bodies. We don't have these broken down bodies anymore. We get a new mind. We don't have these broken down minds anymore. And we can really fully think like Jesus. This is the promise of John, uh, 1 John 3 where the writer of, of John says, Behold what manner of love the Father has given to us that we should be called the children of God. And that is what we are. The reason the world doesn't know us is because they didn't know him. 
But beloved, we are now children of God, and what we will be has not yet been revealed. We know that when Christ appears, we will be like him. We'll be fully restored into his likeness, and we'll see him for who he is, and he'll make us for who we are created to be. Hallelujah. Yeah, that's good stuff, man. Two, two final things about sanctification. Just like salvation, sanctification is something that we don't have the power to do for ourselves. It's something that God does in us. In fact, sanctification is, a, is an act of grace that God does in us and for us, and it's he who does the sanctifying. Now, we do have a part to play. And our part, our job, is simply to partner with him and to not resist God's grace at work within us. Our job is to continually take this posture of surrender. God, what you want is what I want. When, when what I want comes in conflict with what you want, I'm going to lay what I want aside because I trust you and I know what you want is better for me. The, the second thing people sometimes ask about sanctification is that is sanctification something that happens in an instant or is it something that happens over time is it is it instantaneously or is it a process and the answer to that question is yes it, 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 there's something that happens instantaneously there's this moment where the holy spirit comes and purifies our hearts and then there's the process of being sanctified. It's the growing in the character of Jesus. It's, it, it's kind of, you know, you can kind of compare it to um, a, 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 at the moment of a wedding, you're married, but the wedding doesn't make the marriage. The rest of your life makes the marriage. Living in that relationship. And, and so there definitely is that moment, we, and we actually call this a crisis experience. It's that awareness, again, that Paul talks about in Romans 7. And, and the Hebrews, they were, they were experiencing this, you know, where I really want to live the way God wants me to live, but I never seem to have the power to live like he wants me to. And so there, there comes this moment of surrender completely to the Holy Spirit. And then there's the process of living that out. We've been sanctified and we're being sanctified. Right, we're going we're gonna to wrap things up, and I, I want to I close by, by just leading you in a prayer. Those, those who would like to, to do this, and just, you know, you, you, you've received Christ. You kind of understand what it's like to live in this place of, man, like, I really want to follow him, but it's like I don't have the power to do it, and I, there's just this frustration of, I, I, I really want to follow him, and, and, and I seem to do the things I don't want to do, and why is it that I, I can't do the things that I want to do? And, 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 and so this morning, I believe that what he's calling you to do is take that step of surrender and just lay it all down. So I'm going to invite you to stand this morning. We're not going to take a long time to do this. This is an act of faith. This is something that the Holy Spirit does. There's nothing magical or mysterious about it. It's a decision followed by a process. And so I just want to invite you to bow your heads and close your eyes. And if you feel led to do this, if you want to do this, you can, uh, just as your head is bowed and your eyes are closed, I, I always like to take and Hands out, palms up, kind of in a posture of receiving. And, and I want to invite you to just take, I'm going to pray this prayer. 
And in the quietness of your own heart, just take the words that I pray and make them your own. Father, this morning we thank you for all that you've done. Thank you for the forgiveness of sins. I'm just going to pray this for myself. Thank you for the forgiveness of sins that I've received. Thank you for adopting me as your child. Thank you for positionally putting me in right standing with you because of the sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross. And and this morning, I just want to open my heart completely to you. And I, I pray, my prayer is this morning that the fire of your spirit would purge and cleanse and eradicate anything that is in me that is unlike Jesus. This morning, I just invite you, purge my attitudes. Purge my, my selfish spirit. Purge my carnal affections. Consume all of my sinfulness and fill me with your love. I pray this morning that you would so fill me with your love to the point that it overflows out of me even onto the people around me who mistreat me and persecute me. I pray this morning that you would take Everything that's mine. Not not in a means of coming in and forcefully taking it, but take it because I'm freely giving it all to you. I don't want to hold anything back. I I this morning I, I claim no right to anything that I possess. No right to my reputation. No right to my wealth, no right to my position. I give you my my body, I give you my soul, I give you my freedom, I give you my life to do with whatever it is that you please. I pray that you'd help me to the point where my only desire is to know you more and more and more and to serve you on a deeper level. And this morning, Holy Spirit, we just pray that if it's your sovereign will, if I'm ready to receive this sanctifying work in my life, I pray that you would please give that gift to me. However, if I'm not ready, if there's still some work that you need to be done to prepare me and and get me ready, then I pray that you would give me the grace that I need to wait patiently, that you would give me the eyes to see whatever it is that you want to teach me in order to prepare my heart for what you want to do in me. I guess what I'm saying this morning is I just trust you to do what only you can do. I pray that you would help me to love you more than I do in this moment and then just respond as an expression of that love. And I'm just going to pray all of these things today 
In Jesus' holy name, amen. Amen.